time. In right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time. I'm in right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time. Till Jesus Christ came in and placed my heart was in. I'm in right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time. People finna always be pressed by your W's. I don't know what that is, but it's not English, okay? And then we, end, we ended our, our roller skating time with a little more of an intimate uh, <laughs> roller skate dancing together. And of course, he was exhausted, so I had to carry him, <laughs> carry him out of there. But we had a, just a lot of, it was a good bonding time for us. Uh, because I got a picture of something that Brad and Carrie Clark were selling at their garage sale. Can I please bring it up here on the screen? That's my book right there, okay? Now, yard sales where you sell your junk that you don't want anymore. Do you know what price Brad and Carrie Clark were asking for my book? 25 cents. Hope you enjoy your little quarter, Brad. I looked down at my son in that pickup truck and those three naked Barbie dolls in the back of his truck. <laughs> and I just mumble under my breath, that's my boy. And Grayson's looking through the sunroof and says, you remember this, right? He says, oh, look at the full moon, that's amazing. And I looked up, I said, uh, that, that's a street lamp, son. That's what that is right there. I look like that big of an idiot every week? <laughs> all right, I shouldn't have asked that question. Okay, all I was told is, hey, there's a video that's going to run right before the sermon, like to set the stage for the sermon. What was that? <laughs> all right, anyway, um, so yeah, we are starting a new series, and hopefully it'll be better than the last. Um, some of you, uh, I, I'm going to start off with four things that I read this week. I just pulled these four out. Kind of sets the stage for this. Some of you remember Wayne Brady? You remember Wayne Brady? He was the actor on Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, the black guy, he was, it was awesome. He's hilarious. He came to actually to the Performing Arts Center when they were doing uh, shows and stuff there. Anyway, I saw this about Wayne Brady. Actor and entertainer Wayne Brady opened up about his sexuality during an interview published Monday. I am pansexual, Brady said, adding that pan means being able to be attracted to anyone who identifies as gay, straight, bi, transsexual or non-binary, being able to be attracted across the board. During his path of self-discovery, he realized he had always loved his daughter and his family, but he needed to work harder on loving himself. So what does pansexual mean? Sexologist Carol Queen tells Teen Vogue that there is no exact definition for pansexuality. People who identify as pansexual might want to be ready to clarify their own specific take on this identity to people who are confused about its implication. Pansexual came out of the complication people had with bi implying binary. In other words, the way I understand this, um, people would say I'm attracted to both men and women, so I'm bisexual. But now we're in an era where it's offensive to say that there's only men and women. So people who said I'm bisexual are now offending everybody that believes there's multiple genders, and so instead of bisexual, you call yourself pansexual to make sure you cover everything. Brady has chosen to be true to himself and pursue a life of personal happiness, something his ex-wife and daughter seem to support. Then I see this story. This was from CNN. 
Americans got less generous last year as soaring inflation and the slumping stock market took a significant toll on charitable giving. Total giving fell 10.5% from last year's mark. Stock market declines weighed on donors, according to the report. Notably, the S&P 500 plummeted toward the end of the year when a large share of charitable giving takes place. Also, 40-year high inflation rates took a toll. Americans are generous with their excess, but when times are tight, no one is making sacrifices to give, one analyst noted. When families have to decide, do we give up the boat or vacation home, or do we just take a year off from charitable giving? Sorry, but Americans look out for number one. The numbers get worse the, looker, the deeper you look into them. For instance, six individuals and couples accounted for nearly 5% of the entire charitable total of Americans last year. Contributions to religion, education, human services, health, and the arts, among others, fell precipitously. Then there's this. America, this one's from Newsweek. American race relations are in a bad place. Recent polling about how black Americans perceive the state of racism paints a grim picture. And according to Pew Research, things are only getting worse. In 2012, you remember 2012? In 2012, Barack Obama's being reelected that year. In 2012, only 30% of black Americans thought that contemporary racism was a primary detriment to my success. Only 30%. Yet by 2021, that's after eight years with a very popular black president and the entirety of the Black Lives Matter movement, today, fully 68% of black Americans say racism is a primary deterrent. It doubled in that time. Well, over doubled. Black people are not alone in this unexpected perception of a worsening America. An astonishing 81% of Asian Americans do not feel they belong and are accepted in America. White people who are on the pace to slip below 50% of the population, sometimes around 20, 2045, are also displeased with what they see as an emerging acceptance of reverse racism. I thought this was interesting. By all objective measures, where they take anonymous surveys, the United States is now almost certainly one of the least racist large societies in the history of the world. And yet citizens of all colors think that race relations are bad, with most minorities feeling constantly oppressed. The one stat in this that didn't have to do with race that stood out to me was the person most likely to kill a specific male appears to be his wife. So that's encouraging news. <laughs> My house, that checks out. Anyway, last one for you here. This is from The Independent. Far from taboo, premarital sex is now expected behavior in America. In the past three decades, there has been a dramatic shift in the Western world regarding the moral acceptability of premarital sex. Most modern Westerners find the biblical sexual ethic that teaches against it to be illogical, outdated, and utterly unacceptable. Thus, by the age of 19, 85% of American males and 77% of American females will have had intercourse. Those numbers indicate a shrinking influence of churches and traditional moralists that teach sex as something sacred. Recent respondents to survey data reveal that even within the church, attitudes about sexuality have undergone titanic shifts. I still identify myself as a religious woman, said more than one female respondent. But I feel that the Lord has a big world out there to take care of, and so I'll just take care of my sexuality. Complicated by what is perceived to be a right-wing political effort to police sexual behavior, it appears the battle for the bedroom has been won by secular forces. Traditionalists would probably be wise to lick their wounds and live and fight another day. So these are the four stories that I look at this week. And I'm telling you, when I look at those stories, I shake my head. 
I shake my head, and this is what I think to myself. How in the world am I supposed to raise my kids in a society like that? Raise my kids to love the Lord and love the things that he loves. To choose those things over the things that the world loves. I shake my head at that. How do I navigate myself? How do I know how to deal with people that have such divergent views from my own? I, I think it's funny. Um, I'm asked a lot of times by people not in this community but outside of it, you know, how do you navigate when, when you have a gay student in class? Well, I've had a number of students that, that say that they're gay that I've had in class. What's interesting to me is nobody has ever asked me, how do you handle it when you have, what was it, 85% of the males in your classroom or 77% of the females in your classroom whose views on premarital sex are different than your ethic. It's weird, nobody asks me, how are you gonna deal with a promiscuous kid in your classroom? They always ask about the gay kid, but it's the same principle. People that don't, how do I navigate with people that have different views on these issues than I do? How do I know how to teach others? To stand in a pulpit and to teach uh, from scripture. How do I know how to teach other people how to respond and to deal with all of this? And I'll tell you what I think sometimes, and I may, I may be the only one, but I don't think that I am. I find myself saying this in my head all the time. It would be so much better and easier if God would take five minutes, that's all it would take, and just kind of peel the sky back and say, hey, hey, could I get your attention here for one second? And then tell everybody, this is how you deal with sexuality, okay? This is what you should do. And this is how you deal with race relations and people that don't look like you or have the same skin tone. And this is how you navigate uh, society and social giving and all of those things. Five minutes and he could settle all of this. It would be so much easier. And I don't think that I'm alone in asking, why doesn't he just tell everybody what we should do and settle all of our disagreements? And then, of course, what's the truth that I'm forgetting? Right. He already did. He already has told us those things. I'm sitting here mad because God won't tell us what we're supposed to do. And God has told us what we're supposed to do. The issue isn't that God hasn't told us. The issue is that arrogant human beings don't have ears to hear. It's not that God hasn't told us. It's that we decide we know better than God. And we don't really want to listen to what he has to say. Because we've got other people that we would rather listen to. We've got more worthwhile voices when it comes to issues of race. We don't want to know what God has to say about that. That's outdated. We would rather listen to experts. Experts like Ibram X. Kendi. This man makes $20,000 per hour on Zoom sessions to teach people about race. And he cannot even define what racism is. He's the leading expert in America on all matters race. And this is how he defined racism. Can we roll it? about the importance of defining racism, but, I, but I, unless I missed it, which is possible, I didn't, I didn't hear your personal definition. Is there, is there one that you would offer us? Like, how do you define racism? Sure. So racism, I would define it um, as a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. <laughs> Sure, a, a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. Dollars an hour to tell people racism, well, it's racist policies. I learned in elementary school when you define a word, you don't use the word in the definition. And that's what we're doing. And, and these are the experts we listen to 
on matters of race. Uh, this is, no, I don't want to watch it again. On matters of sexuality, on matters of sexuality, we don't turn to what God has to say. We've got experts of our own. We go to Dr. Phil, who treats us to, to mind-numbing conversations like this. Who stood up here and said trans women are women? Yes. Tell me what you mean. What is a woman? Womanhood is something that, just as Ethan explained, I cannot define because I am not but myself. you used the word. So what did you mean when you said trans women are women, if you don't know what it means? Right. So here's the thing. So I do not define what a woman is because I do not identify as a woman. Womanhood is something that is an umbrella term. It includes people that who... That describes what? People who identify as a woman. I identify as what? As a woman. What is that? What's to each their own. Each woman, each man, each person is going to have a different relation with their own gender identity and define it differently. And so I'm trans women that. are women too. And you want to reduce problem. women, you want to reduce men down to maybe just their genetics, our genitals, no. our chromosomes, right? That's what you're saying. What you want to do is appropriate women. You want to appropriate womanhood okay. and turn it into basically a costume that can be worn. I just get tired. I get tired. We are constantly turning to the experts when the expert has already told us all of these things. And it's frustrating to me. How do I communicate to the world that the answers are right in front of us and we ignorantly and arrogantly look elsewhere? On matters of finances, we don't listen to God. We have our own experts. We listen to people like Andrew Tate, the multimillionaire. Let's roll it. The average people come to me and say, what do I do? I'm just the average guy. And my only answer is stop being the average guy. It's my only answer. You can't just be the average guy anymore. The, the idea from the 1950s that you can just be the normal, average, law-abiding, hard-working citizen and you'll have a good life is gone. Any man out here who goes, I'm just going to work hard, do my bit, and obey the laws, and I'll have a good life. No, you won't. No, you will not. Just doing your job is never going to make you rich because you're just going to be taxed into infinity and you're going to stay broke. So I guess I don't follow the laws anymore? Uh, th this is what I'm getting at. Over and over, we're turning to these experts. And why do we do that? Why do human beings turn to those people instead of that text right there? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. We prefer our own wisdom. That's what human beings do. We think we've got this figured out. And here's the reality. These that you just saw, those are modern voices. But that, those are ancient voices. So they're outdated. We don't need to listen to that. We need people that understand. You see, those voices you just saw up there, Ibram X. Kendi and Dr. Phil and Andrew Tate, those people know our culture. These people knew culture two and three and 4,000 years ago. So why would I listen to them to tell me how we should be living now? It doesn't make sense. But you are here. Why are you here on Sunday mornings? You could be anywhere else. There's no expectation that you're here. There's no requirement. Why do we come? Why do I come to church? Why have I come to church on Sundays my entire life? Well, because I was taught from a young age and I believe with all of my heart and I'm desperately trying to teach my children and anybody else who will listen to me that God's ideas are better than our own. That, that's why I'm here. Because I truly believe that what God says is much better and much wiser than the smartest thing that anybody has ever said that is contrary to that. Take the brilliant, most brilliant professor you've ever seen and the greatest book that's ever been written. If it's contrary to that, it's wrong. That's what I believe. That's why I'm here every week. We believe, as crazy as this seems to other people, that a short story, the book of Ruth... 
A short story in the Bible that was written over 3,000 years ago can tell me more about race and about sex and about generosity than all of those voices combined from now until eternity. That one short story, 3,000 years ago, written, can teach me more about those topics than all of those people that are getting paid incredible amounts of money to teach us all about those things. And so, for the next four weeks, we're going to be studying it. This is a little bit different kind of a message because I'm introducing why we're studying the book of Ruth because I know you people, and if I would have said, please join us for a study of the book of Ruth, you would have found things to do for the following four Sundays, and it wouldn't have been here. So I'm trying to tease you into understanding why we're studying this book. And we've got something even better. Jason, he's not usually coming up with good ideas, but this time he did. And you know what he's got? These are little booklets, okay? These are little booklets, and there's this one. I call it the guy one because it's just got the book of Ruth on, the, on like the left side and then lines. This is not good. There's the book of Ruth on this side and then lines to take notes here. This is the artsy version. So I guess if you're an artsy man, you can pick one of these up as well. But anyway, so it's got, you know, it's got little designs and little frillies and stuff like that but all these are these are just the book of Ruth with space to write so and you don't have to take one of these but if you have this you're going to be assigned during the week to read one of these chapters yes and you will do it I will check up we'll have a pop quiz no we won't really but anyway you was, you're assigned to read one of the chapters and leading up to next week you'll read chapter one you can either take the notes that week or bring it and then make your sermon notes there next to the book of Ruth that you wouldn't have room in in the Bible now uh, Jason because he's a cheap man says if you can pitch in a few dollars for one of these that would be helpful I would say because I'm a generous man that if you can't afford that just take one okay Jason can cover it he gets paid a very healthy salary all right so it, I'm kidding kind of anyway like okay sorry um, where was I? So anyway, I really want you to do this because I firmly believe, and if you don't believe like me, then that's okay, but I would say test it, try it for four weeks. See if this book doesn't teach you more about these topics than anything that you're hearing from the world out there. I've told you before about my Hallmark movie dilemma at home. You remember when we talked about this, that Jenny loves Hallmark movies. And once it's Hallmark movie season, which for some reason seems to be all year long, but anyway, when we're, we get the kids in bed and we'll go in and we're sitting there and we're trying to figure out what to watch, I don't know how she's the one that ended up with the remote for the last 17 years, but she gets the remote. And so she'll find a Hallmark movie and say, oh, this looks good, let's watch this. And she'll start it and she'll tuck the little remote right there in her arm and then within five minutes, she's gone. Okay, now... I have a dilemma on my hands because I don't want to watch this thing. This is the stupidest thing. It's the same story over and over. But I know if I try to grab the remote, it'll wake her up. And you don't wake this woman up when she's asleep. And secondly, if I wake her up, like, if I wake her up, what is she going to do? She's going to act like she was awake. No, I was, I was listening to it. Here, uh, let's keep watching it. Don't turn it now. And so I have no choice but to sit there and watch the entire Hallmark movie as she sleeps. Then the next night comes, and we go in, and she said, did we finish that Hallmark movie? And I say, yes, I finished the Hallmark movie. You fell asleep, and she said, okay, well, let's just go back to where I was, and then we'll finish it. Well, that's five minutes into the movie. And so then we make it another five minutes that night, and she's gone. Now I'm ten minutes into the movie. We watch the same Hallmark movie all week long. I know the lines by the end of the week. That is my dilemma when it comes to Hallmark movies. Now. What I'm going to say is, it doesn't star Dean Cain or Mario Lopez, which every Hallmark movie does. But the Bible has a classic Hallmark story, and it's the book of Ruth. It is 
perfect. They should make it a Hallmark movie. What happens? You have a young woman who loses her husband. Her husband dies. And then she has a dilemma because her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law has lost her husband. And her mother-in-law says, you go find love, live your life, I'll be fine. And so it's the moral choice, what do I do? Do I go out and find love or do I stay and take care of my husband's mom, my husband who has passed, do I take care of her? And so she chooses to stay and take care of her. But then what happens in every Hallmark movie? You know, the, the farm boy comes along and he's going to help clean up the brush on their property. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. You got this, you're laughing because you know it's true. This strapping Jewish young man comes along and he comes to the rescue and he marries Ruth and then takes care of Naomi. It's a Hallmark movie is what it is. That's what's in here. By the way, Jenny would fall asleep about right here in the story. The husband gets the first test back. I think I'm sick. That's when Jen's gone, all right? But anyway... Why study a book like Ruth? I'm going to give you six reasons this morning why we're studying this book to set you up for next week. Number one, it's the Word of God. What better thing should we be studying with our time than the Word of God? Jesus said it's scripture like this, like Ruth, that bears witness about me. When you read Ruth, it is bearing witness about me, and you're going to see that. That this story written a thousand years before Jesus is pointing us like a spotlight towards the cross of Calvary. You'll see it. It was written by one, Peter says, the book of Ruth, Samuel wrote the book of Ruth, and it was written by one carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, and he has written these words for us. And we learn in Romans that it was written for our instruction that we might have hope. In the midst of all of that stuff that exhausts all of us, how do we possibly navigate this world? It gives us hope. That's why we're going to study it. Second reason we're going to study it is it's not just a love story. You're going to find this is a story about manhood and womanhood. Our society, if you haven't picked up on this, makes everything about sex, especially relationships. Sex is everywhere and it's about everything. Yesterday, I'm not making this up, Jenny's doing the Meyer order. Like we go and we pick up our groceries. We're not going to have to, we're not walking among the peons. We will have them delivered to us. So she's placing the Meyer order and she asked me on the phone because I needed body wash for the shower. She said, okay, do you want uh, Fiji seduction or do you want Night Panther? <laughs> Show of hands, how many of you think I chose Fiji seduction? Night Panther? Yeah. Anyway, sorry, sorry, it's completely inappropriate, but that's what I'm saying. Body wash, to get the nasty grime off of you, they use sex to sell it. And you, you know, you've seen the ads. I remember in high school, Axe body spray was a big thing when I was in high school. Kids in my class would bathe in it. And I was told that if I just spray it, all of the women at Eastern High School will not be able to stop themselves from gravitating towards me. Apparently, I applied it incorrectly because it didn't happen. <laughs> But I'm telling you, you've seen the ads, sex is everywhere in our culture. I went on Google, in preparation for this message, I went to artificial intelligence. You know what AI is? AI is, like it, online, it will take, like this topic of the perfect man. What it does is, it takes human involvement on the internet, and all the things that we categorize as good and perfect about men, things that we want and desire, it accumulates all of those and then puts together a sketch. It's wild. It makes me uncomfortable that computers can do this kind of thing. I don't like where this is heading. But nonetheless, I used it and I typed in the perfect man. Do you know what came up on the screen when I typed in the perfect man? That's what came up. It really is. You knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. Anyway, they told me, hey, we've got flesh-colored band-aids that won't stand out. 
yeah, pretty good. Okay, this is actually the picture that came up when I typed in the perfect man. Now, honestly, if I'm, I see some resemblance between the two. I'm not going to joke around. But this right here is the perfect man. We have such a skewed vision of what manhood and womanhood is. We do. We have a skewed, in fact, it's so skewed that we are uncomfortable even using those terms anymore. What do you mean manhood? What do you mean manliness? Why are we talking about manliness? That's not appropriate. Why? There shouldn't be any distinction between women can do what men can do and men can do what women can do. We don't, we're not even comfortable using the terms anymore. And Ruth, the book of Ruth, is going to offer a much needed reset. It's going to give us God's vision for both what manhood is and what femininity is. This is John Piper. He says, in making sex the main thing, like our culture has, and in flattering or reversing the differences between men and women, the modern world is losing the glory and beauty and depth and power of what sexuality becomes when it runs like a deep and mighty river between the high banks of righteousness. I don't know why, but I love the way he wrote that. Because here's what I see. I see it in the school. I see it in society. I see people who are desperately trying to find meaning in sexuality. And so what are they doing? They're listening to all of the cheap counterfeits that the world gives. And the world has lost. When you keep sexuality within the confines of God's righteousness, when you obey his commands when it comes to sexuality, you will find deeper and fuller and, and more powerful and more glorious meaning to sexuality than anything that the world could ever come up with. We need, to be, we need to be preaching that and teaching that. This isn't about you can't do something that's fun. This is when you keep it between these confines, you're going to be amazed at the power and the glory of what sexuality actually is. And that is what Ruth and Boaz, that's the dude's name. It struggles a little bit, but that's all right. Ruth and Boaz, they're going to reset all of this for us in the next few weeks. They are going to elevate, I believe, the magnificence of both manhood and womanhood. And I tell you, I think we need accounts like this. Because they are few and far between these days. We need heroes like Ruth and Boaz. We need to see God's model for what this stuff is. And I think that's surely why God preserved this for us for 3,000 years. Number three... It demonstrates the error. This book will demonstrate the error we have with our ethnocentrism. Few topics are as hot or, or as, as volatile right now as diversity and racial conflict. There are few topics that will set people off. How are we supposed to react? What are we supposed to think? Whose view is right in all of this? Am I supposed to listen to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who says, I want a colorblind society? Or am I supposed to listen to Ibram Kendi who says, by wanting a colorblind society, I'm trying to ignore the experiences, lived experiences of black Americans, so I don't want a colorblind society? Who am I supposed to listen to? I don't know if you remember after George, George Floyd was killed a few years ago and all of the riots took place. There was this push on Instagram. Everybody's supposed to put a black square on your Instagram, and that shows that you're standing in solidarity. And I would have Christians, students, who would ask, is this something that I should do? Is this something I shouldn't do? We are confused about whose view is right and what we're supposed to say and what we're supposed to do. Ruth has an interracial marriage. And Ruth's interracial marriage is going to offer insight into how God views all of these topics. Fourthly, I mentioned this earlier, we're going to study the book of Ruth because it points us to Christ. And if there's one solution to every problem that we have, whether it's race or sex or anything else, it's Jesus. And this book will show you again how all of history will point and magnify the glory of God himself. It's written a thousand years before Jesus. But you will see, you will see in the book the glory of Jesus' work on the cross. You'll see it in the book of Ruth. Fifth, 
This book will teach us to love radically. What do I mean by that? I've said this before. Our problem is we put up boundaries when we love. We'll love somebody only so far. We're not going to be embarrassed for them, and we're not going to be betrayed by them. We'll love them up to a certain point, but that's it. We will give up to a certain point. I'll give my tithe because I've worked it into my budget, but I'm not going to go beyond my tithe because then that would hurt, and I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to set up a boundary right here. We set up boundaries all the time when it comes to our love and all of that. It's a personal protection for us. We're guarding ourselves when we do it, and this book is going to teach us something. It's going to teach us that the gift of hope in God cannot help but overflow in us into radical gifts of good for other hurting people around us. You'll see that. Our hope in salvation, your hope in salvation, should make us completely different people. And that's what I see in Ruth and Boaz. Sixthly, lastly, it's going to reinforce that in all of life's issues, God is sovereign and he loves us. You will see that on every page in this. Some have called Naomi the female Job. Do you remember Job in the Old Testament? Super rich guy, had everything, and Satan convinces God, hey, let me, he only praises you because he's got stuff. And so in one day, Job loses his fields, he loses his kids, he loses his wealth, all of it, his, his crops, everything. And he goes into this intense time of suffering. Well, people say Naomi is the female Job. And you think about it, she endures calamity and sorrow as well. Um, if you got your Bible, we're not going to really get into chapter 1, and you don't even have to turn there, it's okay. I'll just read it. This is what Naomi says in, ver in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Mara means bitterness. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. That's her take on all of this. And by the way, she's not wrong. The only problem is she's not seeing the big picture. She will, but at that moment she doesn't see the big picture. That the bitterness that she's enduring is not the end of the story. Now, I want you to stop for a second and think about where so many people are around us. Maybe even you. What do we say or what do we hear? Can I really trust a God? Can I really love a God that has dealt me such a bitter hand? Can I really trust a God who has taken my loved one away, taken my child away in that accident? Can I really trust a God who has left me with no job and no family? Can I really trust a God that, that has let me fall under this illness that I'm never going to get better from? Can I really do that? That's what human beings say all the time, and that is precisely what this book answers. You'll see that in the coming weeks. So we're going to dive in. I want you to look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Okay, look at that first line. In the, in the days when the judges ruled. Real quickly, know the timeline of Israel's history. Okay, because you need to understand where we are in Israel's history. You had this moment, and I colored it in red. That's when you had these obvious God-chosen leaders. Remember Moses? Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. Yes, we remember that. And Moses takes them through the wilderness up to the promised land. But Moses, he dies before they go into the promised land. And who takes over for him? Joshua does. These are men that were chosen by God. God spoke to them and God led them and they led through God's prompting. Right? Okay. Then there will come a time in Israel's history where there is a king. God will ordain Saul and then David and then Saul all the way through and there'll be a king that rules over Israel. It's this time right here in between that is the time of the judges. 
That's where there really is no ruler. And Israel falls into disobedience and they do awful stuff. And so God lets oppressors come in and oppress them. And then the people cry out for deliverance and God will raise up a judge. And there's a ton of them. A judge isn't like a guy in a black robe. It's like a, a warrior king type person. Uh, you've got Shamgar and Othniel and Ehud and you've got Deborah and you've got uh, Gideon and Samson and all of these different judges. That's the time period when the book of Ruth takes place. This is a lawless time. How lawless? Back up one verse from where you just were. You say, I'm in Ruth 1, 1. Right, so that means go to the end of the previous book, which is the book of Judges. This is Judges uh, 21, verse 25. Listen. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Or everyone did, your translation may say, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that not sound familiar? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I take care of my own sexuality. Um, sorry, but Americans look out for number one. During his path of self-discovery, he needed to work harder on loving himself. He's chosen to be true to himself and pursue a life of happiness. Does that not sound familiar? It's the world that we live in. Here is the ultimate reason that I want us to study Ruth together. Everyone around us is doing what is right in his own eyes. That's where we are. But obedience in everyday life, that is what pleases God. And reflecting his character in all of our affairs, that is what is going to bring him glory. We are called to respond to his grace with faithful obedience. And we do so regardless of how godless the world around us becomes. Amen? Amen. So if you're good with that, I want you to pick up a copy if you want one. But even if you don't take one, read Ruth chapter 1 for next week. All right? Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it speaks to us and it teaches us. Help us to remember that it teaches us better than anything the world can teach us. Help us to be students of your truth, not the passing relative truth that the world offers. I know so many people get caught up in it, and it's easy for us to do the same. But for the next four weeks, Father, I pray that we would intently study this story that you have preserved for us faithfully for 3,000 years, and that we might hear you speak on these topics that are so controversial today. Father, we're desperate to hear from you. We want to hear from you. So I pray that that's what happens over the course of this next month. Father, we pray all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus, and everyone said, amen. If you do have a decision to make, you want to come to Christ, we never want to have a service and not offer that as an opportunity. I don't know what God's doing in your heart, but if today's the day, don't wait. Would you come as we stand and as we sing?